Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick from Figure It Out Baseball. Got a really good Figure It Out Baseball podcast today with a young coach who I'm excited to talk about. Um, he's got a great perspective on things, and I, I think he's going to be a guy that moves through the, the coaching ranks pretty quickly. Uh, so we'll get into questions with uh, Billy Barker in a few minutes. Billy's an assistant coach at Paradise Valley, which is a junior college in Phoenix, Arizona. Before uh, we get into questions with Coach Barker, I'll give you a quick background on him. He's a native of Tacoma, Washington. He played collegiately at Green River Community College, a junior college in Auburn, Washington. He graduated from Central Washington University in 2018. Uh, he did spring, spend one spring as uh, an assistant coach at the high school level before being hired at Paradise Valley. 2019 was his first spring as an assistant coach at Paradise Valley. At Paradise Valley, he does coach catchers and uh, plays a big role in recruiting. Now, because of COVID, in the fall of 2020, he spent the fall of 2020 at Ottawa University, an NAIA school in Arizona, but when they uh, announced that junior colleges were going to play in the spring of 2021 in Arizona, he's now back at Paradise Valley. I uh, spent a couple seasons also coaching some high, I'm sorry, spending, uh, spent a couple seasons coaching college summer baseball in 2019. He was in Eau Claire in the Northwoods League as an assistant coach, the prestigious Northwoods League, and then 2020 he got a head, uh, an opportunity to be a head coach at Palm Springs uh, in the Palm Springs Collegiate League. So uh, really happy to have Coach Barker on the podcast today, and Billy, we just appreciate the time. Yeah, Jeff, I, I appreciate you having me on, man. This is big for a young coach, so I'm excited. So I, I typically like to start with something that stands out from the bio, um, but for you, I'd like to start with something else, something that's not in your bio, and it's just basically what you're doing right now as an assistant coach and how you're making ends meet. You know, I don't know that many people, you know, unless they've listened to this podcast and with other coaches I've talked about, but I'm not sure everybody understands what life is like uh, as a college baseball coach, you know, particularly for someone who you know, doesn't start out at a Power 5 school. It seems like guys that go to those big schools, maybe play pro ball for a while, they can kind of nab one of those jobs early. But for the, the vast majority of college coaches out there, and it's not just in baseball, in all sports, you know, most uh, most coaches end up at a lower level to begin with. And I'm not sure just what, if people know exactly what it's like at those lower levels. Um, would you mind just talking a few minutes, Billy, just about kind of what it's like there as far as the amount of time you put in, just if you could touch on what the pay is like, whether or not you get into your salary, but just, you know, maybe other things you have to do to kind of make ends meet. Um, just kind of tell people what it's like starting out with your, really your first uh, your first collegiate coaching job. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's funny. You might be the first person that's ever called – called the pay i got at a junior college a salary so i appreciate that but um you know when i got into this you know as a young coach you're not going to make any money you know and, and it's a it's a tough industry to get into and even harder to stay into and, and money's a big aspect and i guess you know the the love of the game is really what draws you to it and you know maybe your shortcomings as a player or the the fact that you can help other young guys is is what kind of draws you in um but then, you know, you, you live that life for a couple years and you realize, wow, I'm tired of working three different jobs a year to, you know, just to pay rent. And, and that's kind of where I've been, where it's, you know, it, the coaching is a full-time job, as most people listening to this probably know. Um, and then on top of that, you know, you, gotta, you have to go out and find something else. And for me, I've done everything from delivering pizzas at Pizza Hut to, you know, I've been a substitute teacher now for about a year and a half. And, um you, you just bounce around quite a bit in terms of making money and and then thankfully i'm blessed that you know i live in arizona and there's a camp every single weekend at, at a field somewhere that i can i can go work and you know that's a couple hundred bucks here and there but um overall it's it's definitely a different life than what most college grads you know you graduate college and you move right into a job and you're buying a house and buying a car and, and doing all those things and and as a coach it's you know you kind of got to put the brakes on that and and still live like you're in college a little bit. So um, I, I wouldn't change any of it. It's definitely part of the learning experience. But um, <laughs> at the same time, I'm, I'm ready for it to change. Yeah, and especially, you know, as you kind of just go on with life and things change for you. And, um, you know, you as you get married, people have kids, things like that. A lot of those situations can certainly change things. And, and the... You know, the other jobs part is something I don't know if people 
I'm sure other people do it, you know, for, for a lot of different reasons. Baseball's not the only, or, or college, you know, college athletics isn't the only industry that's like this. There's a lot of other ones like that. But, you know, I just don't know that a lot of people know exactly what it is like and, and kind of what it's like to get started. And, uh, you know, those things you did, it's funny just to hear other people tell their stories about the other things they do. I know that my first college job, and I only had to do this once, and I, I'm very lucky for that. After this first job, I, I was set up enough. Um, between whatever I was getting paid and or even and or what my wife was making uh, that I didn't have to do it. my first job I had three other jobs I was uh, I worked with a catering company almost every day I worked for a valet uh, I, I valeted cars when I could when they had openings and, and I was also a bar back a couple days a week so I was the guy in a bar that would run around like crazy and like um, you know bring new bottles and, and retap kegs and things like that and uh, just kind of whatever you can do to make ends meet at the beginning. But, you know, what another thing people don't quite get, I don't think, or, or really think about much is just the fact that you could move at any particular time because there aren't a lot of jobs, aren't a lot of opportunities to move up unless you move somewhere else. On, on typical staffs, there are, you know, two to four coaches, two to five coaches, somewhere like that to get paid. Um, have you thought much about, you know, just where in the country you would like to go? You're from Washington, living in Arizona. Is there... Are there particular spots you'd like to end up, or for you, does it just kind of uh, depend what comes up? Um, you know, when I first got into it, it was I want to stay somewhere where the sun's out all the time, and kind of kind of like a lot of our players, they don't ever want to move on anywhere colder, and then you realize that that's probably impossible coming from Arizona. Um, and, and so, like I said, I, I had you know particular places in mind, um, and then I, you know as I've moved on to this, it's more it's less of where am I moving and more of where do I fit in, you know, and that has less to do with the climate or the, the certain state that I'm looking at and more to do with the, the coaching staff and the program that, that I hope to work for. Now for you, you did spend some time at Ottawa university. So you've, you've coached at a couple different college programs. Um, what's important for you, like for the next job that you look for, Maybe you haven't thought a whole lot about it. Maybe you have, but you know, what are some things that would catch your eye right now if another opportunity came up? Would it be the geography? Would it be how much the team wins? You know, just take the pay out of it. What else would need to be, um, you know, good for you? Do, do the amenities matter? Like, did the, did the facilities of a place matter? Um, the level, the conference, any anything like that, that that particularly to you would have to sort of match up for it to be a good fit? Yeah. Um you know, get, getting into it, the biggest thing when I started coaching was I wanted to I wanted to move on higher to a higher level than I ever was as a player. You know, so like everybody, you know, you want to be a Division One coach or you want to be a professional coach. Um, and and going to Ottawa kind of opened my eyes to some things, just to the differences at the four year level, and you know how different a coaching staff can be, and not everybody's on the same page as the next guy. And so, you know, looking at it now, I'd say the biggest thing for me is finding somewhere that that I can coach with my kind of style while also learning, you know, from the experience of coaches that have been there longer. Um, some of the biggest things for me are, are finding ways to implement data and technology into the game. Um, yeah, and, and like you said, the, the level is, I'm starting to find out, is less important and more where can I be who I am like I don't want to go anywhere that I have to feel like I, I need to change my personality or the way I coach um, I want you know I want to feel like I'm wanted somewhere and that you know the the skills that I'm bringing to the table are important there um, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing is the the technology just with the way the game's changed and um, something that my head coach at Paradise Valley told me a while ago was you know good schools aren't ever looking to hire coaches and that can be a little bit untrue, but it, it opened my eyes a little bit. Like winning isn't everything. Like I want to go somewhere, you know, maybe you take that, that team that's under 500 and, and whatever you bring to the table can, can turn them around and help them kind of get over that hump. And, you know, you turn them into a team that's, that's playing for a conference title every season. Yeah. The one thing about the teams that win that, that I will say, at least in my opinion, is that a lot of them, they graduate coaches, you know, teams that win, tend to have coaches that are sought after. So, you know, opportunities, I think, can come up that way for sure. But, Billy, I want to ask you just about the, the data and the tech side of things. And you just brought that up. Um, what what are some 
types of data or technology that you really believe in that you feel like you've got your your hands on and a good handle on and you want that you know things you implement now and things you want to make sure that you'd be able to implement in in another job that you got like you know where they would say hey yeah go crazy with that stuff go ahead uh you know a big thing was at paradise valley we just this year we got the the hitting rap soda we had the pitching rap soda last year um which you know i i didn't deal too much with pitchers and we got the hitting one this year and the head coach calls me and he tells me, Hey, this is, this is your role. You know, we have a hitting coach that has a ton of experience and I'll, <laughs> at this point, I'll never claim to be a hitting coach. Um, but I can look at numbers and, and tell you kind of where the flaws are and then seeing other programs that didn't utilize that as much. It, it just kind of opened my eyes a little bit more to this is where the game's going. You know, this is what professional teams want. This is what division one teams want. And so if I'm not utilizing that, I don't know if I'm getting better as a coach, um, you know, as, as much as if I was if I were at a place that, that is using that. Can we talk about Rapsodo a little bit? That's not uh, it's not something that we've covered a ton uh, on figured out baseball, especially in depth, but can we talk about a little bit just car, just kind of as you're getting to know Rapsodo better and how you can use it with hitters? Obviously, there is a lot of data that can be collected there, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have a have an idea, but uh, you know some idea of what what Rapsodo can do. But can you can you kind of talk about what you think are the most beneficial things that uh, that you get from Rapsodo? Like, what I'm sure there's a lot of data that necessarily maybe doesn't you don't find that useful, but there's probably other stuff that you do find very very useful when it comes to you know what you do as a coach. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Is, is there something, anything in particular, or maybe one, two, three things that uh, that you think Rapsodo collects that you find extremely useful in your coaching jobs? Yeah, um, you know the the big misconception with it is it, like it's going to take the coach's job, and and I don't see it that way at all. Like I said, we have a hitting coach that um, you know can pick apart pick apart a swing with the best of them, um, and the biggest thing that I see with Rapsodo is now it's not just our eyes you know what i mean so and it has less to do with with individual metrics and more with how how do these metrics you know what kind of relationship do two or three or four metrics have together um like a big a big example for me is guys always want to look at at a certain bat speed um and you know you would think that a higher bat speed would be better but if you're if you're messing up your swing to achieve a, a better bat speed you're probably not hitting the ball that well. Um, and so we, we try and look at the relationship between bat speed and time to contact with the blast sensor. And it's like, okay, where's the optimum level of you have a high bat speed and you also have a really quick time to contact. That means that everything's kind of in sync and you're meeting the ball where it should be. Um, as opposed to guys that just want to like pull the bat, you know, through the zone as hard as they can to achieve an 80 mile an hour bat speed, something like that. Now with blast, another another thing that uh, I don't know that all coaches out there have experienced or have the budget to be able to to use blast with their team. What's what's some of the most important data that you get from using blast sensors with with uh, with any players on the team? Uh, the biggest thing, like, like I said, we we really try and utilize that time to contact. And then another big thing is, is the attack angle, right? The the angle that the bat is meeting the ball at, um, and not not to dive in too much to like the hitting Twitter and and all the arguments we see on there of you know a, a flat bat bat path versus an upward swing versus swinging down on the ball, um, but you know we we look for that optimum number that's where where are you meeting the pitch? You know what I mean? And and I think where a lot of this gets confused is guys are, are mixing up a feel versus what the numbers are actually telling us. So you have plenty of guys that are like, Hey, go swing down on the ball, but that doesn't, you know, that's more of a feel than it is. This is what your bat's actually doing. Are you actually swinging down on the ball or do you just feel like you're swinging down on the ball? Um, and so, you know, we, we try and look at all those numbers and, and we have various ranges that you should be within. Um, and if you're out of those ranges, then, okay, we need to change something. Now, if you're within the range and you want to tell me, tell your blue in the face that you're swinging down on the ball, 
then by all means, go for it. You know, but, but we are trying to figure out a, a weakness and a hitter's swing and how we can, one, correct it, and two, optimize it. A couple things I'd like to ask you about there. Just the first one that you mentioned a couple times, just basically the time that it takes to swing the bat. So you're kind of measuring from when the, when the swing first begins, launches, until contact. Maybe this is an obvious uh, answer, but... You know, I just want to know how you communicate this with your players. Tell me why that's so important when it comes to, you know, being able to hit high, you know, high levels of pitching once you get into college. And, and I don't, you know, whether or not people are familiar with it, no matter what level of college you play, you're going to see really good arms. Maybe not, obviously, the lower levels, you might not see them as often, but they're still there. Um, and, and the higher level that you play, the more often you're going to face elite pitching. Why, as the pitching gets better, is that such an important stat for hitters? Is and maybe you kind of explain exactly what, exactly what you're looking at timing wise. Like you know, from from what point to what point, and why is that so important when when you're coaching? Uh, well, you know, the the biggest thing is I think it's it's speed versus quickness. Um, and, and people confuse the two a lot, uh, but you don't necessarily need to be. It's, it's the same thing as, like, is the fastest guy on your team always the best base stealer? Not necessarily, but it, is it a lot of times is it the quickest base stealer or the quickest runner? And there's, you know, there's differences that you can you can break down there. Um, looking at, if, like, exact quickness times, um, for college guys, we're usually between, like, a .14 and a .15. Um, and, and so that, that quickness helps them in fact of one, not only base and velocity, but what happens when a guy has a good curveball? You know what I mean? Like you, you want to keep that same quickness where the speed doesn't necessarily help you. Like the speed might get your bat through the zone, but you need that quickness to be able to react to various pitches other than just a, a high velocity fastball. Is that kind of what you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to see a lot of it. Is just kind of how you communicate it to players and, and why you think that's, you know, one of the most important things that you're gathering from from the data. Um, you know, obviously just making – oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, and, and one of the – you know, one of the other big things is communicating this with you versus communicating it with a player. Uh, we're obviously talking about it a lot different. Like I, I'm not always going to tell a player, hey, you're, you're – time to contact was 0.16 you need to get that down like they you know they don't know what that means I don't even know if I know <laughs> exactly how to correct that just by telling you that um, but you you place different constraints on the hitter and they, they kind of self-correct so you know whether that's the use of an overload or underload uh, bat and and just like I said placing those constraints on them um, where where they're forced to make that 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 switch, you know, and then they go back to a regular bat, they're in game, they're not like, oh, my time to contact needs to be quicker, um, you know, it, it kind of just naturally happens. Yeah, and I don't know, at, you know, the higher level you go, the less time you have to make decisions, and clearly that becomes a, a really important part of being a good hitter. It, the, the earlier you've got to commit to the pitch, the less, the worse your decisions are going to make, and I think that's a conversation that coaches have had forever with guys, but, and that's one of the things that you know, baseball people out there that are really anti-tech. Um, I, I don't think that you should live and die by tech, but I do believe that there is a lot of really important data that you can glean from things, and that's one of them. I mean, the eye test is one thing. If a guy's swing looks slow, or if a guy's swing looks like if, you know his bat looks really quick and his hands look really fast, but if the data tells you that it either is or isn't, it's hard to argue with that. And I think it's a however you present it to the player, it's an easier conversation to have when you say, "Look, you're you know this this stat for you, the, the time that it takes for you to get your swing off and get to contact is is a lot slower than it needs to be, and, and that's making you make decisions earlier. You're swinging at worse pitches than you would otherwise, and I think we should take some time to." To fix this, I think it's you're gonna. Have, I think you're gonna have uh, very few players who would look at that and say, "Like, no, nah, I'm good." <laughs> like, I think that would mean right. something to them and let them say, "Like, yeah, you're right." Like, hey, if if I'm below average there, that's not a stat I want to be below average. And, and that's one of the biggest things that we've seen from implementing technology is it's not my opinion, it's not any other coach's opinion. This is what the numbers telling you. 
you know so you can argue with it all you want but this is what it is and you you have a choice at that at that point to correct it or not <laughs> yeah um you mentioned earlier billy just about you know going somewhere else if you went to another place you'd want to be able to coach in your style and you're a pretty young guy, and a lot of young guys are kind of just still feeling out what their coaching style is. But if you had to sort of summarize what your style of coaching is, just say you were in an interview and a coach asked you what kind of a coach you are, what's your coaching style, what's your uh, what's your answer? What's the best way you can kind of summarize what how you are as a coach on the field and off the field? Uh, you know, for me, it's it's I look at coaching as a as a two way street, and I know. Um, kind of the, the old school methodology of it. And, you know, what I grew up playing with was, okay, if the coach says this, you listen. That's right. And, you know, working with my catchers and, and I'm, I try and build the trust with them and get really close with those guys. And I tell them all the time, hey, if, if you don't like what I'm doing, tell me. You know what I mean? Because it's not about me anymore. It's about how do I make you better? And if I'm saying something that doesn't resonate with you or, you know, the drills we're doing doesn't work, um, let's figure out something that does work. And so it, it, I'd say it's kind of a new age of coaching. Um, something else you hear a lot, especially like on these podcasts is, is guys talk a lot about the ego. And, and for me, like I, I would say I, I don't really struggle with that because I didn't have an opportunity to play at that high of a level. Um, and so like when a player tells me they don't like what I'm doing, I don't, I don't feel the need to necessarily take it personally. Um, it's more of, okay, well, we need to figure out what, what you do like and what does work for you. Um, you know, I don't like placing rules on guys. I like giving them an ultimate goal. Um, you know, with, with catchers, for example, like you want a faster pop time. Okay, well, I'm going to try and give you the tools to do that. And if you don't want to listen, that's fine. But you need to come tell me why you don't want to listen. You need to tell me what works better. Um, and I think I think it just needs to be more of a relationship aspect more than it is me constantly telling you what to do. Um, I, I, you know, I really try not to force guys into doing certain things, uh, whether that's, you know, receiving from a knee or receiving from two feet or whatever it is. Like, I, I want to experiment. I want you to learn as we go. And my ultimate goal as a coach is that I don't have to coach you. You know what I mean? You can you can kind of figure out your your own body. You can start to figure out that feel. Um, you know what you need to work on, and I'm kind of just there when you have a question. Okay, let me help you. Now, that is an interesting thing to me, especially at the JUCO level, because a lot of times you don't have the players on your team for that long. Um, you know, especially if you get transfers, which you and I talked beforehand, and I know that you do get transfers at Paradise Valley. So you might only have a transfer for one semester. I can remember specifically in my position, one of the most frustrating players I ever coached was a guy that we uh, got the transfer in for one semester. As a freshman at a four-year school, this guy was projected to be like a late first-round pick. And and things kind of crumbled for him in a lot of ways at the four-year school where he was. Uh, academically, he really went down the tubes and just kind of... Uh, had no choice but to go junior college, and this would have been his sixth semester in school. Um, but he had only, you know, had only years one year of eligibility. But regardless, um, you know, this is a guy that, that was that was at one point a, a first round draft pick, as far as you know, like Baseball America was concerned. After he put had a great freshman year at a, at a good Division One program, and when he came in. He, I was the hitting coach, and he and I would work together, and, and I would just kind of say, like, hey, I think this drill can really help you. He'd look me in the eye and say, okay, yeah, I, I get it, I get it. And we would do the drill, and I'd say, man, do you feel that? Like, that looks great. The ball's coming. The ball's flying off your bat. I think this is great for you. And to my face, he would say, yeah, that looks – yeah, I like it. This looks good. It looks good. And, like, literally the minute I would turn my back, he would go back to doing what he was doing. And that was one of the most frustrating situations that I would ever been in, but – you know, coaches now, it's 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 very, very popular on social media for coaches to talk about how important it is to develop relationships with players and how basically you feel like if you're not doing that, then you're not doing your job coaching, and that's what social media tells you. But I, I'll i be one of the people to say that it's not always possible because sometimes you only have a guy in your team for three months and, and you're trying to win in month one and you don't have much time to develop a relationship with a guy and you kind of need to get some production out of these guys right away. So at the JUCO level, Billy, you've only been there for a couple of years, but 
even in a couple years in junior college, I know you have that. You have guys that will transfer in. You don't have them. You have them for a year or a semester at most, and then they're gone. How do you uh, go about having these conversations with these guys to, to say, like, I just want you to be honest with me here, and if you don't like something I'm doing, we got to talk about it, as opposed to the situation that I was in where a player was kind of giving me lip service, then he would go off and do his own thing because he just, I, I guess he thought he he had it figured out or didn't want to have confrontation. I don't know what it was, but how do you have that conversation with guys that maybe you're not going to have for the full two years, you're only going to have for a short period of time, but... In that period of time, you've both got to get on the same page pretty quickly if this is going to work. Well, I think you know the one of one of the really cool things about being at a junior college is, as a coach, you have the ability to dangle that carrot above them. You know what I mean? Especially if it's a kid that transferred down from a from the Division One level, and all of a sudden they're out on a field where they don't have a locker room. There's nobody carrying their bags around, bringing them out to the field. Um, you know, there's no Gatorade in the cooler, things like that, and it, and it kind of hits them like, oh wow, this is this is a lot different. Um, but I still think it's it's relationship based because if you know that about the kid, then that makes that conversation really easy. You know what I mean? Like if you know they want to go back to the Division One level, um, and, and all depending on the kid, it, it can be a tough conversation. You know, where it's kind of that tough love of, well, why do you think the Division One got rid of you? Um, and so I think it, it all goes back to that relationship aspect of knowing how you can and how you can't talk to a certain player, but you also have that ability of, look, if you want to listen, we're going to get you back to where you want to be, you know, and, and they have to trust that, that you're going to do that for them. Um, and at the end of the day, I think there's there's always going to be players that you can't help. You know, you're, you're going to try your best to, to do everything in your power to, to help them and guide them along. Um, but you know, just I'm sure there's plenty of teachers out there that'll tell you the same thing that <laughs> they spend plenty of time with a kid. And at the end of the day, if, if they don't want to learn and they don't want to try and grow, then that's at some point it's on them. Um, it, and, and I have I have experienced that, and I've experienced it with players that came in as a freshman that thought, you know, maybe I should have been a Division One player, and why am I here? And you know, it, it, like I said, it all comes back to the relationship. It comes back to the tough conversation. And I think a lot of coaches kind of shy away from having those tough conversations. Um, for me, being a younger coach, it's, it's a little bit easier because I can write, I can relate to them. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, I know what they're going through. I still remember what it feels like to be in their shoes and, and think that I'm being overlooked or think that, you know, I'm better than I actually am. Um, and and having not only a head coach tell you, but having that young assistant kind of in your back pocket, like I'm here to help you, but I'm also here to tell you there's some things you need to change. Yeah, I I think most coaches have experienced a lot of you know what you have, and um, you know those conversations with players are not always easy to have. I wanted myself as a coach. I always told myself that I, I was going to be honest with guys no matter what. I was going to tell them things they didn't want to hear necessarily, but I was always going to be honest with them. And, and you know, some players, they think they want to hear the truth until they hear the truth. But I think as a coach, in fact, the, the figured out, um, our social media person just put a uh, post out recently on the figured out website. There was a quote from Joe Madden. If I tell you that if something, you know, paraphrasing, if I, if I tell you the truth, you might not like me for a couple days, but if I lie to you, you're going to hate me for the rest of your life. And that's how I felt as a coach. If I, if I'm not straight up with these kids, I might, I could tell them some things they want to hear now, but it's not going to help them. Ultimately, it's not going to help them. And it's probably going to hurt their careers. Right. And it's, it's a tough balance, and I'll say, like, as a young person, I'll be the first person to admit that, um, you know, I don't have that figured out, and there's definitely times that I've said things to players that I probably shouldn't have said, and there's definitely been times where I should have said something and I didn't say it. Um, and I, and I, ultimately, I think that's part of the growing up, you know, and, and gaining that experience as a coach because, you know, my head coach, he'll make decisions that I'll look at them sometimes and, what the hell are you doing? You know, but it always pans out. And it's like, well, when you have 30 years of experience to kind of fall back on, uh, you know, you start to realize some of these things and, and what to say and what not to say. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a tough battle. And like I said, especially as a young coach, it's it's tough to figure it out. 
Yeah, and being with a good head coach that has some things figured out is always a great way to start. And and sometimes I had the same experience at a JUCO where I was. The, the head coach did some things that really made me scratch my head and say, the hell are you doing here? But it usually worked out. He usually had a plan. And uh, even when he didn't have necessarily um, a well-thought-out or a fully-thought-out thought out plan, it still seemed to work out in his favor. But uh, sometimes you kind, of, you kind of catch on with those coaches that they're able to do that. So there's a lot of fun stuff you read about junior college on Twitter. Um, just like, you know, I uh, I saw a, a, one of those things the other day, it's sort of like they uh, somebody throws something out there and you have to, like, finish the thought. And it said, tell me, you know, tell me you are a JUCO bandit without telling me you're a JUCO bandit. So kind of like just weird stuff that happens, uh, off-the-wall kind of stuff that happens, and it only happens at the JUCO level. And there are some funny stories out there. Is there anything in particular, Billy, that you had – any stories that you'd like to share just from your time either playing at Green River or coaching at Paradise Valley that would give those people out there who never had the JUCO experience would give you give people an idea of just kind of what that means that uh, just the JUCO level is a little bit different than a lot of other levels out there. Can you think of anything? Uh, <laughs> you know, as a coach, you, you see a lot less of some of the things that go on. Um, as a player, I think I actually responded to that tweet and my response was coming to our field to find human poop under the dugout bench. Um, <laughs> and it's just, it's just one of those things, like, it's not a stadium. You know, we were playing on a high school field, and so, and not in the nicest area of town either. <laughs> and so, you know, you would find needles and, and uh, other things that we'll leave off the podcast laying around the field. But <laughs> I think finding the, the pile of crap under the bench might have, might have taken the highlight, because then, you know, the worst part of it is coach is going to pick his least favorite favorite player to go grab a rake or go grab a shovel and, and get it out of the dugout. So, oh my God. Um, you know, JUCO is it, it's definitely a character-building experience. Um, I think that's changing a lot. Like, we're starting to see a lot more junior colleges now that that do have stadiums, and they do have really nice fields. And, and you know, so there's a little bit less of that, but – at the end of the day, the, the mentality of JUCO players is, you know, it goes back to not having Gatorade in your water bucket. Um, so you're, you're definitely building a little bit different type of player. You know, we don't have the fancy scholarship or the fancy sponsorships, and um, it, it, it's just different. <laughs> it's one of those, if, if you didn't live through it, it's hard to explain almost. No question. When you, when you brought up the experience that you had, I, I'm sure that every junior college has experienced something or another. But my first year of junior college coaching, and I had I didn't play at that level, but my first experience there, we had a player in the spring who was a transfer in uh, from a school in Texas. I think he was at another JUCO in Texas, if I'm not mistaken. And we thought he could really hit, but he was kind of just an, a little bit of an issue off the field. And toward the end of the year, we left him home on a trip. He had he had an uh, I can't even remember what it was, Billy, but he had some sort of issue off the field. Uh, and we left him home for a trip. And it was at the end of the year, and we came home, and he was gone. He had left school. I don't even think he finished. I think I don't think classes were over, but it was like very, very much toward the end of the semester. But he left. And then when I uh, we finished up that day, and I went to my car, one of my tires was slashed on my car because <laughs> he and I had a. He, I was I was living in the dorm at the time, and he and I had to have a conversation about whatever was happening. And I, you know, I wasn't ultimately the one that made the decision to leave him home. That was the head coach's decision. But I guess my car was just kind of the one that was the <laughs> the uh, the most accessible, I guess. But uh, you know, I don't have any firm solid evidence that it was him but pretty good idea pretty good idea that's what happened with the car tire so right the, the easy target <laughs> yes yeah um as a junior college coach you kind of talked about just that your players all have goals of moving on which is always fun it's always easier to coach guys that have the next step in mind as opposed to the high school senior or the college senior who knows he's done sometimes those guys can lose motivation um, what are some of your favorite parts of, about coaching that level? Is it the development part? Is it the constant recruiting? Um, you know, is is there anything in particular that 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 you really like about the junior college coaching? Uh, you know, the the development aspect is is huge, just because we don't have any kind of time constraint on you know as as far as as long as we can practice. Um, I think the horror stories of the eight hour long practices those are are kind of gone, but 
you know, out here in Arizona, we'll be out there in the fall, and it's 110 degrees out, and we're out there for four, four and a half hours, and that can feel like eight hours in that kind of heat. Um, but, you know, it's just I get to spend a lot more time with the players than, than you do at other levels. Um, and going back to, like, what we were saying with the relationships, like, that's that much more opportunity to build that kind of relationship with a player. Um, Ju- Juco is also a huge eye-opener for kids. You know, they get there, they think, oh, I should have been a Division One kid, and they get there and, re- and realize all the kids on the team think they should have been Division One kids. You know, they're all good players. Every, You know, almost all of them are all-state players or, or you know, they were being looked at by Division Ones. You know, so everybody's still a good player, and they realize, wow, I'm not – that much better than these kids if I'm better than them at all um, and so you see kind of this trend in JUCO where it's like that fall for incoming freshmen is they come in really hyped up and then it hits them oh man this is college baseball and it's way harder than high school baseball and I'm not as good as I thought I was and you know you, you I always look back at kids that came in that first year and you're like man I, I don't know what I'm going to do with this guy I don't know where he's going to end up you know, and then they end up committing to a Division One or a really good D2. And and so just kind of seeing that growth over such a short period of time, I think, is probably one of the funnest aspects for me at that level. Let's talk about coaching catchers a little bit, too, Coach Barker. Um, as, a, as a catcher's coach, the catching, the catching game is something that has evolved a lot in the last couple of years. It's changed a lot this is how, as far as how it's done. What's looked at as the the best way to do things, whether it's receiving, throwing, or even the goals of the position. Um, you know, I saw something. I hate to keep referencing social media, but it's such a big part of of honestly of coaching at this point. And uh, but I saw something not that long ago, just a, a coach talking about a quote unquote catch and throw guy, and how those aren't necessarily uh, they're not always tied together. Sometimes a guy is a good you know receiver catching but sometimes he's really good at throwing and sometimes he's good at both but not always but for me when I was coaching a catch and throw guy didn't mean receiving and throwing it basically meant this guy can catch the ball and throw it to second base and stop the running game and that was a really big part of catching at that time more so than receiving like to me that term catch and throw guy doesn't mean receiving and throwing it just means he can really shut the run game down Um, but that was maybe especially at the big league level that has changed a lot, and I know that it's trickled down to college and below to where receiving is now thought of to be maybe the most important skill for catchers. And I'm just I'm curious with you and how you coach catchers if there is a particular skill or two that you think are at this point the most important thing to be good at as a college catcher. Uh, not to say that the other ones aren't important, but but that like this is more important than others. Like, honestly, when, when I coached, I coached catchers for a little while. I was an emergency catcher in college. And, um, you know, the receiving part of it was important, but not so much so that you were going to give up. You weren't going to make receiving a priority over blocking, and you weren't going to make receiving a priority over throwing base runners out, whereas now maybe that's flipped. So I just kind of want to see what your take is on just catching in general, you know, what you believe are the most important parts of catching for a college catcher. And I'm sure that reflects on how much time you spend on these particular areas. Yeah, so as far as catching, I, I would say receiving is is like the gold standard of it. That's If you can't receive, then I don't want you as a catcher. Um, you can be really athletic, and I can teach you how to receive, and I'll take you. Um, but if, if I was going to rank them, it would be receiving, blocking, and throwing in that order. Um, and these, you know, a lot of this is stemmed from Major League Baseball because they do have all the data now that shows us, okay, receiving is going to, you know, uh, the best receiver in the game is is gaining, you know, seven runs overseas or over a game, and and you know, the lowest guys are getting negative runs. Um, just because we can translate defensive ability into run safe now. Um, one of the big things that, like, something I always tell all the catchers and I, I tell other coaches when I talk to them is the position has changed in terms of the physical ability and what we're asking guys to do, but I think the mentality of catchers has stayed the same, and that's something I try really hard to impart on my catchers. Like, it's still the most physical position on the field, Um I'm a little biased, but I think it's the smartest position on the field. 
And so, you know, we, we still try and train that aspect of it. Uh, but I would say I'd spend anywhere from 75 to 80% of practice time with catchers on receiving um, and then the rest on blocking. Throwing, I've kind of just implemented a, a throwing program when they're playing catch warming up um, just because we don't always have the time to get into, okay, I'm going to have you throw to third, throw to second. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to recruit guys that have a negative arm. You know, you don't have to have the best arm to come play for us simply because I put throwing lower on the totem pole than I do receiving and blocking. I think it's great. And I, I just, I like, I like hearing that, I like just kind of hearing how things are progressing in college and just sort of how, um, you know, just things have changed in the, in the coaching world in a short period of time. Are you a, a one knee or two knee receiving guy or does it depend on the catcher and his physical abilities? I, I would say I am a experiment guy. You know, let's let's find out what's going to put you in the best position to receive the most strikes. And, you know, if we're going to look at, at Major League Baseball as an example, you have guys like Austin Barnes with the Dodgers who is phenomenal from two feet. You know, we, we rarely, if ever, see him go down to a knee, um, and he's lights out. Now, I can't always ask guys to do what Austin Barnes does. And it's a lot easier to put them down in a one-knee setup, and they receive a lot more strikes. Um, the other aspect that I think gets lost in this is it's completely situational. You know, if you have the tying run on third and it's bottom of the ninth inning, okay, maybe blocking the ball has a little bit more weight than receiving a strike right here. Um, so it's, it's kind of finding the middle ground and, and a good balance for that specific catcher. I will say that, in my experience, the majority of these guys benefit hugely from from dropping down to a knee. Um, if we're if we're looking at the receiving aspect of it, um, as far as blocking, I, I I would say the same thing. I think majority of guys are blocking just as good, if not better, from a knee. And I I don't have access to the same technology that Major League Baseball does, um, so you know there's there's a little bit more subjectivity in that, but. I have, I have yet to run into an issue of a guy that's set up in one knee and he all of a sudden can't block a baseball. And certainly that's where things would come into play if you get into the game. And that's kind of, again, another thing of just how, kind of how it's always been, that you don't necessarily want to change a hitter. You don't want to change the hitter on the first day of the fall until you really see, okay, this part of your swing is prohibiting you from doing this. That's when you've got to make changes. And probably the same with catchers. If you experiment with a guy blocking on one knee and, and you pretty consistently have balls that should have been blocked that aren't, that, that's going to be a problem. So my next question was going to be, do you do you have a preference or do you ask catchers to change based on the game situation? Example, nobody on base, are they receiving more often on one knee and with guys on where they have to block, they potentially have to throw, are they more often than not on two feet? Or, again, is that an individual thing, or are you seeing that really isn't that much of a difference with most of your guys? No, I, I think the, the situation of the game is what completely dictates what the catcher's doing. Um, and, you know, a guy getting on first base, traditionally it was, okay, we got to get ready to throw him out. We have to get into a secondary stance, which I don't even teach anymore. Like, secondary stance isn't even in my vocabulary at this point. Um, I would rather teach a guy to throw from a knee because – what does the hitter have to do to score the, the run from first? You know what I mean? He he has to hit a triple, a pass ball, okay, he gets the second. And I know there's going to be a lot of guys that hate me for that, but, um, you know, giving up bases, especially second base, isn't the end of the world because even if he's on second, you still got to, you know, if he can't run, okay, you still got to hit a double. If he can run, the guy still has to hit a single. So if you start looking into the probabilities of, of certain situations, um, I think like a runner on first, we're still from a knee, especially if it's a, a catcher that I, you know, they've been able to learn how to throw from a knee. Um, then yeah, we're going to keep you down to a knee. I think it starts to change a little bit once they're on second, and it definitely changes once they're on third. Um, at that point, I would rather put a guy where are you most comfortable, you know, because yes, you have to block the baseball at this point. You know, if he tries to steal third, you have to be able to throw him out. So I want you to set up to give yourself the best chance of success. Um, but understand, like, receiving strikes is still huge. And not even receiving strikes, but if we're receiving balls off the plate that the guy's not swinging at and we're, we're getting those as strikes, that can help a lot, a lot more than worrying about the ball in the dirt. 
And that's, again, just things that have changed, a mentality that has switched, and that's a big deal. Is part of that, let me ask you this, now what, uh, I guess without imparting anything on you, why do you think that's changed? You're still a fairly young guy. Uh, I don't know when this change came about, but I've got to believe that when you were, you know, in high school and college, this the, the one-knee style really, it probably didn't really come into play until you started coaching. I think just in the last couple of years in the big leagues, it really started being sort of the standard that you saw. Why do you think now in in Major League Baseball it's happened because teams are running less, so a catcher's value really comes from stealing strikes. But in college ball, I don't know that teams are necessarily running less. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But in your opinion, uh, Billy, why why has this also trickled into college where receiving is now the gold standard as opposed to a guy that can really block, a guy that can really throw, a guy that can really shut down the run game? Yeah, it, ultimately it come, it all comes back to the technology and the fact that we can now see the probability of a run scoring with a guy on first and if he's still second, how that probability changes, um, you know, which which ultimately started with, with professional baseball, but even in the, the higher ranks of college baseball, you know, all the power fives have a track man set up. You know what I mean? They're, they're recording the same data, um, and, it, and it's just kind of trickled down. And I think the more you go down in level, the the more all three of those become important, you know, uh, receiving, throwing, and blocking. Um, obviously, at lower levels, you know, if you look at, like, youth baseball, you're, you're struggling to throw strikes at that point. And so maybe receiving isn't that important. I mean, we know receiving isn't that important at that level. Um, once we get into college, you know, as coaches, we tend not to recruit guys that throw a bunch of balls. You know what I'm saying? So it, the the importance of a strike, it might carry less weight at the college level, but I, it still carries a huge weight as compared to uh, the blocking and, and throwing aspect. Yeah, you don't recruit guys simply that don't throw strikes unless they throw really hard. <laughs> really hard. <laughs> <laughs> we'll still take those guys. Um, with coaching catchers, you said you spend a lot of your time uh, on receiving stuff. I, I know you can't uh, physically demonstrate anything, but are, is there anything in particular that you can tell people listening to this, maybe some of their favorite things to do with guys, whether that's maybe like weighted balls or, or some implements I've seen in some drills, like guys catching Frisbees or, or whatever, maybe ca- catching tennis balls barehanded, you know, working with a machine, throwing high velocity. Like, is there anything in particular you can just kind of talk about that are some of your favorite things to do with your players? Uh, I think it all starts with, for me, there's two big aspects of, of receiving really well, and that's the timing and, and pocketing the baseball. Um, and so most of the drills that I do are going to constrain one or the other. And so like you said, like we'll do, we'll start with a lot of bare hand stuff, um, with weighted balls, with, with wrist weights, with a J band, um, just, just changing it up from what they're going to feel in a game, um, possibly making it a little bit harder than it is in a game. And then, you know, we move into a machine and, and one of my favorite things to do with a machine is like, okay, we're at. 50 feet velocity's cranked up um we're gonna pump that in there and you know we're always working i rarely work like a a straight fastball unless it's just a guy trying to get a feel for moving the ball into the zone um so a lot of times i'll set up you know a right or a left-handed curveball or some kind of a slide or something like that and then i'll also as you know we'll start with the velocity and then i'll move the thing out behind the mound and you know we're at 70 75 feet and it'll have a lob so we're now we're changing the timing a little bit um because i do like guys working the ball back into the zone and and finding kind of that feel for the pocket i've always heard and i've and anybody that's caught knows this to be true like there's an acoustic to a strike right like you get that loud pop and so like i'm always telling guys where's the pop you know and it's not me telling you to pocket the baseball or how to pocket the baseball but it's how do you organize your body to get that that sound um and so you, you pair that with the timing, and I, I think those are the two biggest aspects of receiving strikes. I love that. One last question I want to ask you, Coach Barker, before I uh, let you call it a night here. You're you're a young coach, but to me you're impressive because I think that you've got – you clearly have ideas on things. I think that you feel like you've got a good feel for some things. And, and to me, a coach that is – 
um, your age, your experience level who who can have confidence in what he's doing and feel confident in it, but not not overconfident to the point where they feel like they don't have to learn anymore. I, I just I enjoy talking to young coaches that are in your position, and you know, assuming that you're able, you're you're lucky enough or, or whatever or skilled enough to stay in this game a long time. What do you hope to get out of coaching baseball? If assuming that's a career that you have for the next thirty years, like if you're able to do that. Uh, you know what is what's what do you hope to get out of this? Who do you want to be seen as in the coaching world? Maybe you haven't thought about it before. Maybe this is the first time you've really thought about it. But I'm just would like to know just kind of what you want to get out of this and who you want to be in the coaching world. Um, you know, assuming you're able to coach for a long time. Uh, you know the the biggest thing for me, I think, is is number one, turning it into a career, um, getting to that point where it's you can comfortably say this is my job this is my career um you know all the coaches all the head coaches in our conference they've they've done it a long time and they're not leaving that spot and i i respect every single one of them um for the fact that they've gone through what i've gone through and and they now have the ability to basically do a child's game as as a job um and so you know i i don't think there's like I don't necessarily need to be like a Hall of Fame coach and I don't need all the accolades, you know, huge win records. I think it's, it's more how many players can I have an impact on and, and how long can I actually do this? Um, and so, so, yeah, the big thing is just I want to look back and, and be able to say, hey, my, my whole life, you know, I got a business degree and thought I was going to do that, but my whole life I was a coach. That's that's ultimately the big thing is I just want to be able to say that, that I did that for my entire career. It's it's a luxury, uh, and and obviously for guys that do it, there are a lot of sacrifices along the way. And I think that um, you know I think anybody that that coaches at any level, it's not just college coaches, high school coaches give up an incredible amount of time with their families for for almost nothing pay wise. They, a lot of a lot of high school coaches and travel coaches probably uh, spend more than they make <laughs> throughout throughout their time coaching. So I think anybody that coaches for a long time and really has the player's best interest at heart, you know, deserves uh, accolades and, and applause from people. And uh, anybody that just does it with the kids in mind, I think, uh, is unique because you don't. There aren't. Not everybody that coaches has that. A lot of guys that coach do it for other reasons, and, and I always just appreciate talking to, to people who have a good perspective. This is Billy Barker, everybody, and I, I think, Billy, I think you're, as a young coach, there's just a maturity about you that, that I enjoy, uh, and I've, I've enjoyed our conversation a lot. This has been a great podcast. I sincerely appreciate you uh, joining me for this and, and just all the things that you shared, and, and I'm excited to see what happens with you. I think people that listen to this hopefully will agree with me that uh, I think you've got a bright future in coaching. And uh, just want to wish you all the best and hope things work out for you. And, and one more time, just thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast with us today and just share all your thoughts and feelings. Absolutely, man. Thank you. And, and you know, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of get that, get out there and throw my name out there a little bit and, you know, get a little recognition. So I, I definitely appreciate you having me on.